0: Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter four, and put your finger there. And turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter fifteen, because in order to understand just, uh, Romans four, we have to understand uh, Genesis fifteen, which is the giving of the covenant. So, when uh, the giving of the covenant to Abraham, and God makes a covenant with him. We essentially have an exegesis of of this passage within Romans 4, and uh, so we've got to understand them both. Uh, you may also want to flip over to, uh, if you have enough fingers, flip to <laughs> Psalm 106 as well. Uh, we, may, we may go there. Uh, you don't have to go there, but um, we may get there as well. Uh, it depends on how long we go. I may leave that out, so I'll at least point you to it. So let's, uh, let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for you, your great love. We're thankful that, uh, that since the ages began, you had planned to call the people for yourself through Abraham, through his descendants, through his descendant, Jesus, our Messiah, our Lord. Father, um, we're thankful that in thinking of that and contemplating it, that uh, the, the love of God, the very love of God is so overwhelming that it, it is uh, it's inexplicable. How can, we, uh, how can we look at that and not uh, be broken? Be broken in, in ourselves and uh, be thankful in what has been provided. For you so loved the world that you gave your only son Whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. For that, we are grateful, and uh, we just pray today that you would uh, help us as we seek to understand your word. And uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, we're going to be looking at Abraham. And not just Abraham, but what the Bible says about Abraham. And this, this is an important... Uh, thing to note: well, What Paul is doing in this passage is he's he's essentially exegeting Genesis chapter 15, and telling us the way in which the Scriptures have have argued uh, that justification, that is entering into the covenant, justification is by faith. And I'm going to try to explicate that and uh, make it make it clear exactly what that means. Um, within the context of of Romans chapter four. Romans chapter four, verses one through eight. What therefore shall we say Abraham our father, according to the flesh has found? For if Abraham were justified out of works, he has a reason to boast, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. But to the one who works, the reward, the wage, some, some versions say. The reward is not counted as a gift, but as debt. But to the one not working, but believing upon the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned for righteousness. Just as also David says about the blessedness of the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord by no means reckons sin. Paul has been arguing in chapters 1 through 3 that God's righteousness, that is, his faithfulness to the covenant promises that he made with Abraham, have been unveiled in the good news about Jesus. This is the overarching message that he has attempted to convey to the Roman believers, and The same thing he is attempting to convey here in chapter 4, when Abraham himself is raised. But there are many unanswered questions about what God's faithfulness to the covenant means as it relates to election. And what I mean by election is this, in light of Jesus, who are God's people and how has the unveiling of God's righteousness in Jesus, the Messiah, affected who God's people are. Election means who are God's people. That's all it means. Who are they in its broadest sense? No one would argue that there hasn't been a seismic change in who the people of God are in light of Jesus. And in fact, this is what Paul is attempting to convey. To put it a bit more clearly, if God's historical people, Israel, have been unfaithful in their covenant obligations and in their rejection of Jesus, their Messiah, and yet many of the Gentiles have believed and entered into the covenant, what does this mean for God's promises to that people? Have the promises failed? Has God changed his mind and cast away Israel? If God said he would return and deliver Israel, and yet they haven't accepted such salvation as a whole, as a whole people, how can God still be considered faithful to the covenant? This is the overarching concern of Paul, and it's the overarching concern of Paul when we get to Abraham in chapter 4. Now later on we will see, Paul says explicitly, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, he says, given that Paul himself and the other believing Jews have come into the covenant. In the book, Paul begins to unfold how God's faithfulness is manifest by beginning with God's just judgment upon all mankind, as we've seen in chapters 1 and 2. While it would have been clear to any Jew that the Gentiles stood under God's judgment, it was not at all clear where the Jews would stand in relation to God's judgment. Right, They are the ones who received the covenant. Would they be under God's judgment as well? They would likely have considered themselves, as Paul says um, in chapter 2, in many ways exempt from God's judgment. Considering themselves to be guides to the blind, lights to those in darkness, correctors of the foolish, teachers of the immature, having in the law the very embodiment of knowledge and of truth. This is how Paul characterizes the Jews of his day, perhaps even characterizing his former self. But Paul says that on the whole, Israel, as a people, have been unfaithful to this calling. Unfaithful to the calling to be guides to the blind, lights to those in darkness, correctors of the foolish, and teachers of the immature. This is Paul's point about the Jews. They were indeed commissioned by God, not for their own sake, for the sake of the world at large this is why we see for example as we read the story of the exodus all the nations round about israel looking on to see what israel what god will do with israel what he is doing in her midst and they're looking on to see how great israel's god is among (coughs) and through his people it's why rahab the harlot says i know that the lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the Lord of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when he came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sahan, uh, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, For the Lord your God, and this is the point, he is the God of heaven above and on the earth beneath. The creator God had called Israel and was bringing her into the land and the surrounding nations were watching on to see what God would do with them. God had called a people, not for her own sake, but for the sake of the world, to be the light in the dark world of the Gentiles. And through signs, wonders, and even wars, he is piercing the darkness, eventually to unveil his covenant faithfulness through Abraham and his descendants. This people was called to mediate the creator God to the world. God has called a people to show that world that their idols are useless. To show that world that the God who made the world cares deeply about his creation and the people who are called to rule over it, all humanity, to eventually be the means through whom God rescues all humanity and thereby rescues all of creation, creating a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells covenant faithfulness. It is why we see the language of priests used in relation to Israel. God called them to be a priestly nation, to mediate the very image of God to the world. God's work among Israel is to make them, according to Exodus 19.6, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is, they were to be royal priests who would rule the land and reflect the image of God out into the Gentile world. As God brings them out of the nations into their own land and gives it to them as an inheritance. Now, a man is not a priest for his own sake he is a priest for the sake of others. He stands in an intermediary role and that is what Israel was called to do. And back in Romans, Paul seems to be saying, at least on the surface, that the Jews are sinners too and therefore in the dock just like Gentiles. But actually he's saying much more. He is saying that as God's people called for the sake of the world, they have failed in that very mission. Their failure wasn't simply to be good boys and girls, and therefore they will be judged as well. No, they had a special calling as God's people. And they too, because they are in Adam and sin is in them have failed to be God's priests to the world. And you can see this as as this is being set up, you can see how Jesus fits right into that picture. Paul says in, um, in Romans 2.24 about Israel, quoting Isaiah two five that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you speaking to the Jews. Why would God, why would Isaiah care if his name is blasphemed among the Gentiles if he didn't care for them? And if Israel didn't have a priestly role to play in relation to the Gentiles? That is precisely the point. Israel was to reflect the God of Israel, Israel, was to reflect the creator, God. Note that we too, we too, as priests, and we can, you know from reading the New Testament that we too are called to be priests to the world. We too have a priestly calling as God's new people in the Messiah, and we don't want to be found unfaithful in that obligation. We have inherited in and through Christ, this priestly obligation, since he himself was and represented faithful Israel's mission to the world. According to Paul, this unfaithfulness of Israel makes Israel's circumcision useless. Since circumcision was a sign given to one who is faithful to the law, as Abraham is said to have been in Genesis 26:5 being faithful in the covenant obligations as a witness to the wider world. What has come about now in light of Jesus is that the sign of circumcision has come to be realized in a way that was never fully anticipated. God has unveiled, according to earlier in Romans, who the true circumcision uh, really are, those who believe in Jesus. God has fulfilled the covenant with Abraham, and those who believe in Jesus show the work of the law written upon their hearts. They are truly circumcised. They are like their father Abraham, whether Jew or Gentile. Those who not having the law, as we saw earlier, show the work of the law written on their hearts. And though Paul doesn't explicitly say in two fifteen and 16 that these are Gentile believers in Jesus, that seems to be clearly what he means. They are not random pagans who somehow are believers without knowing it, who are therefore pretty good people, somehow showing that they know right from wrong. No, this is the category that Paul is setting up. Gentiles, mysteriously keeping the law by faith in Jesus and through the indwelling spirit, are the new people of God, along with believing believing Jews. It's a category that he's setting up and one to which he will return in chapter 8. For there, he says, that the righteous goal of the law is fulfilled in us, he says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. They are the ones who, in chapter 2, show the work of the law written on their hearts. They are the in-secret Jews, the heart-circumcised people, Romans 2.29. But Paul then quickly turns again to the plight of Israel, according to the flesh, where he says that they too, like the rest of the world, are under sin. Now, this doesn't simply mean that they are people who do bad things, though that is indeed the case. It means much more of that, as we've seen in light of Israel's vocation. Abraham and his descendants are called to be the answer to the problem of sin. And this this is what I'm adding here. If we look within the Pentateuch, if we look within Genesis, let's say, stick with Genesis. In Genesis, Adam is at the very head of this, right? There's creation, there's fall, the fall of Adam. Everything that comes before is working its way toward chapter 12. And chapter 12 is the call of Abram. And within the context of, of Genesis as a whole, Abram slash Abraham is actually meant to serve as the the solution to the very sin of Adam. In other words, these aren't just loose stories. It isn't as though Adam falls, Adam sins, and that's a disconnected story from the rest of Genesis. No, the very the very answer to the problem of Adam is to be found in Abraham, and he calls him out of where the Chaldeans and he. He blesses him and he says, look, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. That is the answer to the sin of Adam. The whole world has inherited and affirmed the sin of Adam. And it turns out that Israel has too. How will God do what he has intended to do with Israel? This has put him in a bad position having made promises to Abraham and then to Israel that may prove impossible to keep in light of Israel's unfaithfulness. But it turns out actually that Jesus's faithfulness, the representative Israelite to the divine plan is how God himself will be faithful to the promises he made with Abraham and Israel. And he has shown how this has indeed happened. In chapter 3, 25, verse 25, Paul says that God put him forth as a hilasterion, which means not necessarily the sacrifice itself, but the place of atonement, the mercy seat. If we look at how this is used in the Septuagint, the translation for the word mercy seat is hilasterion in Exodus twenty-five seventeen, And as I'm often inclined to say on the basis of a three and this passage as well, God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. That is, he made him the mercy seat, which is the place of atonement. It is the place where God will ultimately deal with sin. The body of Jesus is that place of atonement, the mercy seat, the place where sin is dealt with. And he says in chapter 3, it is in this way that he demonstrates his righteousness at the present time, his faithfulness to the covenant promises, and he shows that he is both just and the justifier of the one who believes in faithful Jesus. This excludes boasting. God himself did it in his son, and covenant membership now comes through faithfulness in Jesus. Now, getting to chapter 4, to buttress Paul's claim about Jesus being the way through whom God keeps his promises, he turns to Abraham himself, not simply as the man Abraham, but as the one with whom God made the covenant in the first place. He is not simply an illustration of a faithful believer, though he is that. He's not simply uh, an example of one who believed in God and therefore we are to to follow in his steps, though that is also true. No, he is the one with whom God made the covenant in the first place, which itself has come to fulfillment in and through Jesus. We might summarize this section, chapter four, as follows Abraham, the recipient of the promise of an, of an innumerable family, believed the promises of God and entered into covenant with God. That is, he was justified receiving membership in the covenant that God has now fulfilled in and through Jesus's death and resurrection. Justification in this sense means God made a covenant with him. He has given him righteousness, that is status, covenant status, and the deeds done in the covenant. That is in fact, the heart of the good news that God has kept his word to Abraham. I want to set up this week by framing Romans 4 as an exposition of Genesis 15. We're gonna come back and look at at some other things like how does the law fit within this a bit later. But Genesis 15 is the text that stands behind uh, Romans 4. And we must look at it if we want to understand at all what's happening in Romans 4. After Babylon in chapter 11 of Genesis, where the sons of Adam, it says very explicitly, the sons of Adam, they are there in Babylon making idols, building cities, building towers in which to worship, right? After they, after they embark on this building project, God calls Abraham in chapter 12, or Abram at that time in chapter 12. And he promises, contrary to what's going on in Babylon, where they're attempting to make their own names great, he says, I'm going to make your name great, Abram. He promises to make him the father of many nations. The father of many nations. This is very important for the, for the story that Paul was telling, but also for the story in Genesis. God has promised to right the wrong that Adam had brought into the world. And he's going to do it through Abram. He's going to do it by calling one man, and then a people, and he's going to create a family. And that's how he's going to deal with sin. Now, that doesn't quite compute. I'm going to try to show you how that how it works a little bit later. So you basically have the calling, the justification, and then you get the, the consequences of that justification, which is often what we focus on, the right, the right status, forgiveness of sins, and these types of things. Those are the consequences of God entering into covenant but they're not the justification itself. Justification is when God makes a covenant with Abraham. And I'll show you how that works in our text. The covenant of Abraham is how God plans to deal with the sin of Adam, mankind's representative, and thereby make for Abraham a seed, a family. For this reason alone, we cannot ignore the covenant when we talk about the gospel. But God's fulfillment of that covenant is the heart of of the good news. In Genesis 15, he makes a covenant by which he will eventually right those wrongs. Flip over to Genesis 15, and let's uh, let's look at the first few verses. And then what what I'll try to do is bring that back to Romans 4, and show you the way that the way that Paul is actually reading reading that text, and the way that he's reading it exactly the way the author intended him uh, to read it. Genesis 15-1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. Your mistas, it's a common term that Paul is going to use in Romans 4. Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? So he says, your, your reward will be very great. And Abraham says, what are you going to give me? I don't have a child. Okay? And Abram said, since you have given no seed to me, no descendant to me, one born in my house is my heir. Verse 4, and then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Verse six, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, this story raises some questions that we often overlook that we need to answer before we go to Romans four. Number one is this. What is the reward that God is promising to Abraham or Abram? What does Abram believe and therefore receive from this promise? And what is this reckoning as righteousness mean? What does this mean? First, what is the reward which will be very great according to this story and which we will also see is the same reward in Romans 4, often translated, very often translated there as a wage, as a wage. He says in Romans 4.4, 4, uh, just for our reference, Now to the one who works, his wage, same word in the Septuagint, his reward is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. To the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. What is that reward? The reward in this current text, in Genesis 15, is an heir, it's a descendant, through whom the promise of a worldwide family may be realized. Now what's important to note here is that the reward is not, you're gonna go to heaven one day, I'm gonna save you, these types of things. It doesn't mean that it doesn't include that, it's that primarily what he is concerned with is, am I going to have a child? through whom you can fulfill the promise that you made to make out of me an innumerable people composed of Jew and Gentile, of Israel, Israelite and, and the nations. That's what he's concerned with. Now, we're gonna see that that's exactly what Paul was concerned with too, okay? So uh, it, it doesn't seem quite to fit, but I hope to, uh, hope to show you how, how that actually works out as we get to it. The family, the family that Abraham has promised or Abram is promised in chapter 12 is going to be all the nations. It's going to consist of all the nations. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, he says. In our current text, in Romans chapter 4, all the nations are the ungodly. Okay, we're going to see that in just a moment. Uh, he's going to justify the ungodly. And so Abram, part of what Abram believes is that God can justify the ungodly. Which means that one day God is going to bring into covenant the ungodly nations. That's what Abram is believing. God is going to save the nations. They will be as innumerable as the stars of heaven. He's one man, remember. But he's going to have, a, a, he's going to have descendants that are going to be innumerable. It is not primarily salvation. This is the benefit not the, not the main thing salvation and things that come with it are the benefit to being in the covenant with god in our text the reward the wage is an heir which produces a family so follow that he says first your reward will be very great abram abram says i don't have an heir how can my reward be great he says, I'll give you an heir. Then Abraham believes that God will do exactly what he says he will do. Okay. And that's what he believes, that God's going to give him a, a son through whom he's going to have an innumerable seed. Okay? The author then declares, because Abraham believed, God reckoned his faith as righteousness. Now, what does this mean? Abraham believed that God would give him a family, even though he had no children. We often think that what he believed was that God somehow exists, right? So there's no Jesus there for for Abram to believe in. So he just believed that God exists. This is often how we think. That's not what's going on here. He believed that God had made promises to him. He's the creator God and that he's going to give him a family. Now, what does he do as a result of Abram's faith? He reckoned it to him as righteousness. He reckoned his faith as righteousness. This is what is commonly called justification. These are big words, but if you, if you read Romans, you have to know them, right? If you ever want to understand Romans or, or any of Paul, you have to know what justification is, sanctification, whatever. And he, he uses all of these, these terms, translated into, into English, of course. But it says that he reckoned his faith to him as righteousness. This is commonly called justification. And it doesn't simply mean that God somehow made Abraham sinless. Though one of the benefits of this reckoning as righteous means that he was forgiven of his sin. As we'll see later in Romans. That's a benefit. It means, very simply, God made a covenant with him. He he gave him membership in the covenant. He gave him the status of, you're in the right. He justified him. How do we know? First, if we look at the context of Genesis 15, that's exactly what he does right after Abraham believes. He made a promise to him, and he made a covenant with him. Genesis 15, 6. He believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. When God justifies someone, when he justifies you, what it means is that he makes a covenant with you. He declares you in the right. Sins are forgiven. Yes, you are in the covenant. That's what it means. He gives him covenant membership, a status of being in the covenant. When he just, justifies Abraham, Abraham here, he does so because Abraham believed that what God had promised regarding a worldwide family, he was able to accomplish and would do it. In other words, he believed that God could, through his justification, justify the Gentiles also. One day, Abram, looking ahead, said, God said he's going to do it he's going to make a, he looks out at the stars and he said, there's a lot of stars. God is going to make a family as innumerable as those stars. This is why it is absurd from a biblical perspective for the Jews to say in Paul's time, Jesus's time, or in any time, that covenant membership is only for the Jews. It is why Paul will later say that they sought that is, the Jews of his day, they sought a covenant membership of their own and not a righteousness which is on the basis of the faithfulness of Christ. The Jews of Paul's day, and perhaps our own too, believed that the covenant was for them and them alone, not wanting the Gentiles to participate in the riches of God's mercy. It is why Jesus was so irate at what they had done to the temple in his own day by turning the outer court into, of the Gentiles into a bazaar. God has all alone had the Gentiles in mind, that is, you and me. Now, let's look back at our text to see all, how all of this fits. Here in our current text, in Romans chapter 4, there's an additional element of the law that Paul is dealing with, and I'll save that, we're going to look at that next time. But let's look at what's going on in relation to the terminology that we've been looking at so far. In Genesis 15, in verses 1 and 2, Abraham is said to have found something. What is it that he has found? Paul says, essentially, that he found justification by faith. What does he mean by that? Here's how it works. Thinking in terms of Genesis 15, Abraham found that God was to fulfill the promise of a worldwide family not by something Abraham himself would do or put into effect. If that were the case, then there would be boasting. Rather, what Abraham had to do is exactly what he did, believe God's promise and be faithful to walk as God commanded him. When Abraham does this, God justifies him. That is, he makes a covenant with him. The covenant as Paul will say, isn't on the basis of works, by which Paul doesn't mean good deeds, though if he had meant it, that would be excluded as well. What he means here is that it is not on the basis of the works of the law. Abraham's justification being put into the covenant couldn't have been according to the works of the law. The law had not been given when Abraham was living. And so the fulfillment of that very covenant also couldn't come through that means. This is what he's getting at here. It, would have, uh, it wouldn't be given until 400 years later, the law, that is. So justification, the justification of Abraham, when God initially makes this promise, was not according to works, that is, according to the Mosaic Law, but was according to the faith of Abraham. God justified him putting him into the covenant and began the work of bringing about that family. There are several times thereafter in the story of Abraham where the promise seems to be in danger, but Abraham continues to rely on that sure word of God. Any work that might seem to even imply that Abraham had brought about the covenant promises by himself is nullified quickly. But this is what happens when, with Hagar in the very next chapter. Sarah's, and thus Abraham's, ingenuity in bringing the promises of God into reality is rejected. It's rejected as the equivalent of works of the law. This, I think, is how Hagar is connected to Sinai and Galatians, in fact. Sarah's giving Hagar to Abraham as a wife for the purpose of bringing about the promise of an heir is rejected. The promise will not come about by finagling in the flesh, by substituting a slave for the free woman. If so, God would be indebted. This is the logic of Paul. God would be held hostage by us or by Abram. No, God will do it in his way, in his time. What will he do? According to this passage, God will justify the ungodly. That is, God will bring Gentiles into the covenant of Abraham, Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work, that is, go about finagling in the flesh, trying to bring about the covenant promises, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that is the nations, his faith is credited as righteousness. Abraham isn't the ungodly here in this passage, as has been so often assumed. It is the Gentiles, and what, what our text says is that Abraham believed that the Gentiles would be ultimately brought into the same covenant. It's the Gentiles whom God has said would be blessed in Abraham. They are the ungodly whom God will bring into his covenant through faith. Once again, the, the message for Paul as apostle to the nations is that the Abraham Abrahamic covenant is for you and for me. God is making a worldwide family and this family becomes a part of the covenant family in the same way that Abraham became part of that family. Abraham believed God for an innumerable family. Where do we go with this? What's the takeaway for us? It seems a little bit irrelevant for us and not very doesn't seem to apply. Just a just a mental exercise and understanding. But it does, it makes a big difference for us. First of all, you and I are the ungodly. We're among the nations. We're those from among the nations that are now part of the seed of Abraham. And it depended not on our own ingenuity to bring it about. Secondly, your justification, your being put into the covenant, your being justified was not for your own sake but for the sake of those who will be added to the people of God through us, through you. God has credited our faith as covenant membership, and God has forgiven our lawless deeds, not crediting sin to our account. We are no longer in Adam, that is. We are in the Messiah. Thirdly, this forward look means that God is creating a family for the future, Through us, through us, through the preaching of the word, through the witnessing uh, every day, God is creating a future family. He is creating this future family, not for heaven, but for new heavens and new earth, wherein dwells righteousness. That's what we will be doing. We will be on a renewed earth in the new age. That is resurrection. As we will see in chapter 8, Abraham and all his children will be raised in the resurrection where justification by faith will meet justification on the last day. This is being ensured through the Spirit, the Spirit of God who indwells us, who is also the first fruits to be obeyed and enjoyed now ahead of the resurrection. And finally, The Lord's Supper that we celebrate each week points to the blood of the new covenant, often called the new covenant. And while it is new in a sense, it is that covenant that was made with Abraham that God has brought to its goal in the death and resurrection of Jesus.